Father, God, what a beautiful, glorious day it is today. And not just because of what it looks like outside, but because of what it looks like inside this church building with men and women here to gather together under your word to worship you. This never gets old to me, Lord, because I know it's just a weekly glimpse at what our eternity will look like, rejoicing and enjoying you and one another and making much of Christ. I long for that day, God, when our time of worship is just unmingled with sin and brokenness, God. But Lord, today we, uh, we're here and we're ready to hear from you. And so as we open up to Nehemiah chapter 3, would you be with us and open the eyes of our hearts to see what is there for us to apply to our lives as we strive to increasingly glorify you. God, to be straight, in a passage that many of us would probably be tempted to gloss over, or even just skip, help us to see what you desire for us to see and remember that every single bit of your word is profitable to us and worth teaching for the sake of our training, correction, and increased practice, uh, practical righteousness. So we, we love you, Lord. It's in your beautiful and infinitely worthy name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, we're living in what is now being called the information age, as you may know. And the statistics are pretty staggering. Humanity creates, as a whole, roughly 2.5 quintillion bytes of data per day, uh, much of which is accessible online, uh, and that number is only increasing, okay? I won't try to explain how much that is because uh, I don't know that I fully fathom, I can fathom that or grasp it. Uh, it is astronomical, uh, but in a practical sense, though, here's what it means, okay? Here's what it means. We have so much information at our fingertips, don't we? Right? Like, like we can have a random thought, and at the press of a few buttons on our phones or our iPads or computers or whatever, we can be reading about and learning about just about anything in the known universe, and there is likely more that's there about virtually anything than we even care to know. Right? It's amazing, really, but also it's a bit overwhelming. And I think uh, that what I've seen is it can actually lead uh, to our growing sense of impatience. It can lead to impatience. Here's how it happens. You, you suddenly realize that you need to know some piece of information, right? About how to get that stain out of your couch or that weird bug bite that your, that your kid has or, or how to go about writing a resume or something like that, okay? And a host of articles are generated. They come up on that search. And so you, you click the first reputable looking one and you begin to read. But what happens? Your reading quickly turns into scrolling, doesn't it? And skimming. It would only take like four and a half minutes, you know, to read the whole article, but you don't have time for that, right? Well, you do, but you don't have time for that, right? So, so you're just looking for, at that point, you're just looking for keywords and subheadings, right? Right? I know this is true, but you're looking for subheadings until you get to what you really want to know. Can I salvage this couch cushion, right? Does your kid need to go to the doctor? Is there a template you can just copy and paste, right? Side note, uh, do you ever find an article and you start skimming to find out there's no subheadings? Oh my goodness, no subheadings. Like who wrote this article on superficial anterior cervical lymph nodes? A Neanderthal? Come on, you have to break it up with subheadings, right? We're so lazy. I'm guilty too. This is all from experience, okay? This is just part of our lives now. But if we're honest, I think a lot of us have allowed, because there's so much information, right? We've allowed this kind of information skimming to bleed over into our Bible reading as well, haven't we? If you're honest, we have. Especially in those chapters of the Bible with a lot of names, Long genealogy has derailed many an otherwise hopeful Bible reading plan. That's, this is why these, you know, verse of the day devotional books abound and they sell so well these days because we're just like, just skip to the important part already, right? I get it. It's a real temptation 
because we're so accustomed to doing this with information now, we just want to sift out the key takeaways and scrap the rest, right? But when it comes to God's Word, He says that every bit is profitable, right? It's profitable. It has something to teach us about Him, now, if only the key verses were important, then God would have, could have really condensed that thing, man. Like, it could have been like a pamphlet, you know, with just a few bullet points or something. But he didn't. He gave us a large collection of historical narratives because it's all important. It's all important. So today in Nehemiah chapter 3, we're going to see the people of Israel actually, what you've been wanting to see, get to work. Right? They're going to get to work. But the entire chapter, I'm just warning you, is names. It's names and brief descriptions of what those people attached to those names did to contribute to rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. So let me um, tell you two important things really quick before we start when it comes to reading passages like this. Okay, here's what you need to keep in mind. First of all, number one, the list of names is itself significant. The list itself is significant. So rather than sigh inwardly and flip over a couple pages in your Bible until you get to something good, think about why that list is there. Think about why the list is there. It's not for nothing, I assure you. Okay? It's not for nothing. The list itself has some significance that we need to pick up on. And number two, oftentimes there are small details with big meaning hidden among the names that you will not see unless you actually read them. Okay, that's the only way you get to it. You know, I love what John Piper says. It's not my John Piper says, you know, if you want to rake for leaves, you can rake for leaves. If you want to dig for gold, you might find gold, right? So how do you want to approach the Bible? Sometimes you got to read a list of names, all right? That's just part of it. So with that, Let's jump back into Nehemiah. We're going to read all of chapter 3, and I promise you, this is going to hurt me much more than it's going to hurt you. Right? These names are not easy to pronounce, all right? Hoping most of you haven't taken Hebrew. So uh, I thought about having David Snelling doing this for us as a scripture reading, because that would have been entertaining. But I've met my quota for giving him a hard time this week, so... I'm just going to do it. Bear with me. All right. Okay. Nehemiah chapter 3. We're picking it up in verse 1. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassan... Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshusalem, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yashana, and they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatea, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maran Maranatha, I don't, can't say that one, sorry, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the sea of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, uh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem repaired. Next to them, uh, Judea, the son of Haramath repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneah, repaired, and Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and, his and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, 
ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He built its, he built, rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, son of Kolhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, not the same Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, son of Hinnadad, ruler of the half district of Keilah. Uh, next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, son of, or ruler of Mizpah, repaired. Another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin, Benjamin, and Hash, how did I mess that one up? Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, uh, the son of Maaseah, son of Ananias repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress of the corner, uh, buttress to the, into the corner. Uh, Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, uh, Padeah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, uh, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and project in the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites, there they are again, repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Um, Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired uh, opposite of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far, as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Whew! All right. Thank you. Thank you. That's really, that's really kind. I don't know that I did that well, but uh, <laughs> you're like, we would never do that. So anyway, uh, <laughs> if you're looking for a good Bible name for your next kid, there you go. Uh, lots of good ones to choose from. Meshezebel, okay? Barakiah could go berry on that one for short. Good stuff. All right, but seriously, uh, there is some really good stuff in this passage. I think uh, there are two big ideas that we can draw out of this passage, and they both really have to do with what this passage represents, okay? Uh, and then there's a couple little nuggets uh, that are brief but profound that tie in as well, okay? So let's go number one. First of all, Nehemiah chapter 3 is a picture of how in the kingdom of God, everyone is called to work side by side in unity, regardless of vocation, to fulfill a singular mission. That's a long point, but you'll get it. All right, so do you see that in the passage? Whenever you read a passage of Scripture... You should look for words and phrases that repeat because uh, that's usually a tip-off to something important that's there. And in this passage, there's a little three-word phrase that repeats over and over and over. Next to him. Next to him. So-and-so built this and next to him. So-and-so built that and next to him. So-and-so built these things and next to him. Right? So your first time reading... You may get more distracted by the names than anything else, but that phrase next to him really paints a picture, doesn't it? Can't you just see all of these people hard at work on the wall together? Can you visualize that? This passage outlines some, some 40 sections of wall that vary in length that all different people from all over Judah were working on. They didn't hire a contractor to come in with construction crews in tow. They, they all rolled up their sleeves and they did the work that needed to be done together, side by side, 
Most commentators speculate that uh, as, as many as are named in this passage, this surely is not an exhaustive list so much as it is a representative list that seeks to remind the people of God what kind of project this was. It was one where everyone worked together in unity. Okay? We see that there are people with all kinds of different trades, unrelated to construction, mind you, who are getting their hands dirty and they're building this wall. Perfumers, priests, goldsmiths, and merchants alike. I'm just speculating here, but if you're a perfumer, you're probably not used to masonry work, like setting posts and laying bricks and pouring concrete, but that didn't matter, did it? That didn't matter because uh, while what they were building literally was a wall, it's what the wall stood for that motivated their manual labor. They were rebuilding the reputation of God's people, and they were desiring to see the kingdom of God flourish in the midst of their great capital city, Jerusalem, once again. What a beautiful picture of life together as the people of God this is. What a picture of unity, right? And as I've said previously, we're not going to be building anything here on our church property anytime soon. This passage is it's better applied spiritually to New Testament believers anyway, as opposed to pragmatically, I think. And so as, as Jesus' church, we too are called to a singular kingdom mission. We're called to a singular kingdom mission, to make disciples to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. That's Matthew 28. And Mosaic, that's our vision. That's our vision, to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey his word. If you're wondering where we got our vision statement, we didn't get creative with it. It's just the Great Commission. It's just what Jesus has commanded us to do. It's just what Christ has told us to do together while we await his return. And just like in Nehemiah's day, the same is true in our day. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. If you're a a soldier or a stay-at-home mom or a real estate agent or a hairdresser or a teacher or veterinarian or police officer or whatever... Whatever. If you are a Christian, look right at me. That's your identity. If you're a Christian, that's your identity. Okay? Do you know that? You are not what you do for a living. You're not what you do. You are first and foremost who God says that you are. You're who God says that you are. You're a son or daughter. You're a saint. You're a disciple. You're a citizen of God's kingdom. You're a witness to the truth of the gospel. That's who you are, no matter what it is that you do to put food on the table. And so just like we saw all different people, okay, from all over, all over the the nation of Judah there, working to rebuild the wall in Nehemiah chapter 3, we ourselves are all different people with all different backgrounds who come together to build the kingdom of God as the church today. And we do it, why do we do it? We do it because of the gospel. We do it because of the gospel. The gospel is what unites us. Every single one of us, at one time, we were separated from God as a sinner, dead in our trespasses and sins and without hope in life. But by God's grace, we heard about Jesus. We heard about Jesus, that he was the son of God who lived the perfect life that we never could. He died the death that we deserved, and he did those things vicariously right? That is, he did them for us in our place so that, so that we could place our faith in him and be saved from the eternal punishment that we deserved into eternal life. And that not only does Jesus save us, but he, he redeems us, right? He, he gives us the power to live godly lives that honor him 
and simultaneously restore our God-given purpose in life as his image bearers who live to tell. We live to tell. We live to reflect and tell about the fullness of joy in life that can be had in this gospel. Okay? That's why we're together. That's why we're together, church. The gospel message is and must always be what unifies us. And the main way that we show that we're unified is in our love for one another, right? That's how we show we're unified, by our love for one another. But follow me here, okay? Follow me here. The way that our love for one another expresses itself most often, okay, is in our work together. It's in our work together. That's really true of any intimate relationship, isn't it? Love is not merely a feeling, right? If it's real love, it has to be action as well. Am I right? Okay. Men, if you neglect your wife and you refuse to serve her, but then you tell her that you love her, she probably won't believe it. I hate to break it to you. She probably won't believe it. Why would she? There's no proof to substantiate your claim. If you just think she's pretty and you have fond feelings about her, good for you, I guess. Any old guy could have that. That's cheap. That's cheap. Real love does work. It gives. It serves. It engages. It pursues. The same is true in regards to the church. The same is true with the church. The church is not a building. Here's a phrase I don't like. We're going to church. No, you're not. You are the church. You're not going to church. This building's not the church. You're the church if you're a believer. If you're born again, you're the church, right? Don't tell me you're going to church. You're not going to church. You're going to a church service, okay? <laughs> All right, sorry. That's not in my notes. <laughs> the church is not a building or an event. It's a people. It's actual, living, breathing people who've been redeemed by God's grace. That's the church. And so if you say, I love this church. I love this church. But you don't express that love through action. You don't serve. You don't give. You don't engage. You don't form relationships and, and so forth. Then I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying you might be confused in your terminology. You might be confused in your terminology. You either don't understand love or you don't understand church. Either don't understand that love involves action, or you don't understand that the church is a living thing. Okay? Maybe what you mean is, I like this church's worship services. Or, I like that this church has young people in it, like me. Or, I like that this church teaches the Bible. Right? Or, I like that the pastor of this church wears skinny jeans and has tattoos and tells dad jokes in his sermons. Okay, probably not that one, okay? But <laughs> when it comes to love, love is not simply a general fondness of something. Love is deep care and concern that expresses itself through generous action. That's what love is. And so I say... That for a church that is unified together in the gospel, this expresses itself in their love for Christ and one another, and that love expresses itself through their work together. Okay? Here, let me, let me show you. Okay? I can tell you, some of you are still like, eh, okay, let me, let me show you. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, 12, and 27 says this. It says, now, he's talking about in the church, okay? Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. 
And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Okay? So the Apostle Paul here is he's speaking to the Corinthian church and he's helping them to understand the nature of their togetherness and their unity. And he does so, as in other places, by explaining that they are like the human body. They're like the human body. If a human body is alive, which is preferable, okay, then you can observe that life in the work that it does. Can't you? You can observe that a human is alive by the work that they're doing. A body, a human body does work internally, right? Regulating the the inner health of itself with the organs and the blood and other chemicals. Help me, Jason. I'm not a doctor here, okay? But this is happening, right? This is happening. It's science. Science, okay? So, but it, it also does work externally, right? And that it moves its muscles, its bones, and in order to complete complex tasks like running or typing or rocking a baby or throwing a football or giving a hug or playing guitar or driving your car, right? A body that is a body in good health is a body that is constantly doing some kind of work, right? Even when it's at rest, right? Your body doesn't just die every time you go to sleep, right? You know that, right? You don't like die and then you're alive again. Like that, that's not how it works, right? Like, like when you go to sleep, sleep is a necessary daily function in which your body is still working. It's replenishing your energy stores. It's having its necessary resets, okay? You know all this. And Paul is saying that the church is the body of Christ in the world today. This is where we get that expression, that Christians are to be the hands and feet of Christ. Have you heard that? This is where it comes from. If you were to read this entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, you'd see that Paul explains how we all have different roles and thus different functions, different giftings and talents, but we're all to be using those things that we've been given by God for the sake of the body as a whole. Okay, He says... That as with the human, the physical human body, so too with the body of Christ. A body cannot function rightly without all the parts being active. Okay? So for instance, just because I'm the, the pastor, okay, doesn't mean I'm the most important member of the body. Okay? Without other elders and, and leaders and ministry teams and brothers and sisters, lots of them who, who do important things that are maybe not as visible as what I do, I would not be able to be the church. There's no way I could do it all. Not even close. Just ask David, right? Not to mention, I'd be wasting my breath preaching to a room with no one in it, right? A mouth is an important body part. But it's of no use if it's unattached to a head and lungs and a stomach and apparently for me, hands, because I flail them around while I talk, okay? So we as the church are a body. We're a body, the body of Christ. And we demonstrate that through the love-fueled work that we do in unity together. To back that up, we see this again in Ephesians 4, which I mentioned last week as well. So let me read that to you. Ephesians 4, 11-16, speaking of Christ, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the church. That's you. The saints, right? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood... <clears throat> or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up 
in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, there's that word again, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when, it, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. So it builds itself up in what? Love. See that work and love? You see how those two things are going together there? Okay. So in this passage, Paul is mainly talking about the leadership gifts. Apostles, prophets, mailers, shepherds, teachers. Okay. He says that the Lord has given these giftings to the leaders of the body of Christ in order to build them up so that the entire body is growing and maturing into the image of Christ, who's the perfect example of spiritual maturity. Right. In order to get there, we have to be connected first to him. He's the head, but also to one another. The idea of the body building itself up makes me think about going to the gym, okay? If you work out or you've ever worked out, what you've probably found is that all of the parts of the body are integrally connected, right? Our body parts are all connected to one another. So if you, if you want, for instance, if you want to work out and you want to build up your back, Okay? You want to strengthen your back, for instance. And let's say you want to do like a, a lat pull down. That's this thing right here, right? You're pulling weight down like this. That involves your hands. Involves your arms, mainly your biceps, okay? Obviously, you're, you're getting the strength to pull from your back, but you also have to engage your core, okay? Your legs have to be locked in place. Your feet have to be firmly stabilized on the ground. Paul wants us to think this same way about the body of Christ, the church. Okay? We must be unified in the gospel. We must have the commonality of purpose that we want to be advancing God's kingdom. And we all have to be committed to using our different giftings and talents towards that end. Or else we're not going to function well. I told everyone at the partner meeting a few weeks ago that after the pandemic, thankfully, we still have a body, okay? It's more than some churches had left, but we're still fun functioning in some ways like a zombie body, right? We're, we're dragging certain limbs along, you know? We're just kind of just barely making it in some ways, okay? Unable to engage certain muscles the way we used to. We shouldn't want that. We shouldn't want that. We should understand that our individual involvement in the local church directly impacts how well Christ's body is working in the world, right? That's a big deal. Your involvement is a big deal. John Piper says God's aim in giving us gifts and in giving us the faith to exercise them is that his glory might be displayed. He wants us and the world to marvel at him, to think he is fantastic, because he is, okay? So you're serving, you're giving, your engagement in worship and discipleship and outreach, it makes an impact. It makes an impact as you do it side by side with the rest of God's people. <clears throat> and it puts the glory of God on display, right? It puts the glory of God on display. Church, we, we are not living in a unified world, are we? That's a no-brainer. We're not living in a unified world. And so as Christians, when we are living in love and unity together as Jesus' church with differences of background, differences of race, differences of age, differences of vocation, all kinds of differences, and yet we're working together for the common good, that kind of unity will make people marvel at Christ. They may not know anything else, but they are probably going to be like, you know what? He seems good. He seems good. Our unity is an apologetic in that way. And so we should strive to look like the nation of Israel in Nehemiah chapter 3. Not everyone worked on the same section of wall. Not everyone had the capacity to build the same amount of wall. I'm certain there were varying abilities and contributions and skill levels. But together, they all formed a picture for us of how in the kingdom of God, everyone is called to work side by side in unity, regardless of vocation, to fulfill a singular mission. That's the first big takeaway, okay, that I think we see from this big old list of names that, just be real, you probably would have just glossed over it, okay? That said, I want to make a midway point between that first point and my second point. Don't worry, the second point's shorter, okay? 
It's kind of going to form a bridge, I hope. Another thing we see weaved into this chapter of Nehemiah is the reality that when a biblical vision is cast to God's people, it causes a split, okay? When a biblical vision is cast to God's people, it kind of causes a split into two camps. Remember last week, Nehemiah, he cast that strong vision when he said in Nehemiah chapter 2, he said, you see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. So this is, this is a great and godly vision, right? He's like, let's not just sit here, fam. Let's not just sit here. God is for us. Let's get to work and let's be who we're called to be as God's people. This was a call to action, okay? And the people responded positively to him. They said, Let's rise up and build. Let's do it. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. And so when a biblical vision is cast to God's people, here's the first camp. You ready? Here's the first camp. Many will faithfully rally together and go all in by sacrificing their resources and mobilizing their families. Okay? That's what we see. As all these people are working on the wall together in unison, all these people with different professions take note they're just like you, okay? Their main source of income came by doing the work associated with their vocation. And so they're sacrificing their resources in order to build this wall. Rather than making perfume, rather than working with gold, rather than selling goods, the perfumers, the goldsmiths, and the merchants, they're all spending their time and thus presumably the resources they, they're losing by not being engaged in their main vocation in order to build this wall. Okay, And then in verse 12, we see that this guy, Halohesh, if that's how you say his name, even has his daughters out there working with him. So he has mobilized his family in the work with him. And this is how God's people get things done in every age. Okay? It's not any different now. I tell you this often because I don't want you to forget, Mosaic is a church because the men and women of Mosaic are invested in it. That's why we're a church, okay? They sacrificially give their resources every week in keeping with their income as we're instructed in, in, in the New Testament to do for the work of ministry to be supported financially. There's not some big outside organization pumping money in here. There's not a money hose somewhere. It's the men and women who are here who care about it, that fund it. And they involve their families. Many of our families here, are they're, they're all in. They're all in because they want to see a church like Mosaic continue to flourish. And so husband and wife are serving in varying roles and with varying capacities, and their kids are in it too, right? The ones who are old enough to be, right? Because guys, listen, a church cannot be a church if the church won't be the church. Follow me on that? A church cannot be a church if the church won't be the church. If you want to be part of a church, then be all in, man. I'm for real. If you zoned out, wake back up. If you want to be part of a church, be all in. I mean this. I really mean this. If Mosaic is not a church where you can be all in, Find a church where you can be. I don't want to see you go. I love this church. I love you. I want you to be here with us as a part of our church. I think Mosaic's great. I think you're great. But you should be an active part of the church, right? Be a part of a church where you can really get behind the vision and give it all that you've got. Give it all that you've got. Because that's how the church keeps going. That's how the church keeps going through every age with all that the world throws at it by the many, the many who faithfully rally together by sacrificing their resources and by mobilizing their families for the sake of the mission. That's how the church keeps going, man. Right? But sadly, there's one verse in this passage that sticks out like a sore thumb. In verse 5, It says, the Tekoites, 
They're doing a good work, right? They come up again later, too. They did a lot. They're repairing part of the wall. Tekoa is a, a small town to the south of Jerusalem, okay? That's how they get their name. And it says, but, verse 5, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. This represents kind of a, kind of a standoffish, kind of arms-crossed portrait of these Tekoite nobles. Apparently, they don't care to help. They don't care to help, and so they determine not to lower themselves to do anything in support of the mission, right? And so we see that when a biblical vision is cast to God's people, many will rally together and sacrifice and get their families on board with them, but some will sit out idly and hold back indifferently out of spiritual apathy, it's, it's kind of an interesting phrasing to say that they wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord. But most commentators note this is a Hebrew cultural expression that if translated literally means they wouldn't bend their necks. They wouldn't bend their necks. It, it, it harkens back to the expression of being stiff-necked which God says of his people in the wilderness during the Exodus, if you remember reading that a little while ago. And that reference to their Lord, they wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord, it likely just implies that at the end of the day, it wasn't Nehemiah that they wouldn't stoop to serve. It was God. It was God that they wouldn't serve. I don't want to spend too long on this, but I do think it's worth noting that the spirit of the Tekuite nobles lives on to this day. Some people, I don't have anybody in mind here, I've just seen this over time, okay, as a pastor. Some people, no matter how passionate the pleas for help, and no matter how strongly the gospel is preached as a justification for their involvement, they will just remain unresponsive. Some people just remain unresponsive. People will be working all around them, you know? but they'll just sit out and remain idle. Perhaps even their own families are getting to work. We see that with the Tekoites. The Tekoites are doing work. The nobles are not, right? Maybe their own families are getting to work, but that seems to be of no incentive to them. They hold back out of seeming indifference that it has to be attributed to spiritual apathy. What else could it be? Just like the Tekoite nobles, they're present and they know that they're, they're welcome to join in, but they just don't seem to care enough to serve the Lord. Maybe they think it's beneath them to serve. Or they, they don't think they should have to sacrifice their hard-earned resources. Or that they shouldn't have to give up their free time to work more than they already do at their day job. right? But whatever the reason, we don't know the reason, whatever the reason... There seem to always be these people who determine to be stiff-necked and not join in with what God is doing among his people. Maybe they don't even think about it this way. These kind of people, maybe these kind of people just benefit it out, you know, like maybe they don't, aren't even thinking about it this way, but their unwillingness to be involved is, as verse 5 says, an unwillingness to stoop to serve their Lord. And so with that, we come to our, our second and final big point for today, which is that while chapter 3 of Nehemiah serves as a picture of kingdom involvement, it also serves as a reminder, a reminder that we all have good works to be walking in by faith and that we will give an account to the Lord for in the end. Okay. As I was meditating on and just preparing to teach Nehemiah chapter 3, it, it occurred to me, okay? Last week, I made the tie between Nehemiah and Christ, saying that Jesus is the greater Nehemiah who calls us to, to rise up first out of death and, and into life, but also into all the godly resolves that are before us as his disciples, and he supplies us with all the grace that we need to do it. You know, I was, I was thinking about, a lot of this you have to visualize, okay? I was thinking about how Nehemiah 
must have gone about writing this chapter of his memoir, right? Everyone had gotten to work, and I'm sure he was supervising and helping out wherever he was needed, but in that, he was observing. He was observing. He was watching. He was taking note of everything that was going on. Sometimes I I get the privilege of doing that when we have an outreach or a fellowship or, or something like that. Everyone's, everyone's working hard. Everyone's busy doing all the things that need to be done, right? And I'll just, I'll pause just for a second in the midst of all the hustle and bustle, and I'll, I'll look up and just see all that's going on. And I'll just thank God for our church in those moments. Just thank God for our church and all the different people who work together like members of a body to get things done for the sake of the gospel. But anyway, this thought occurred to me. Just like Nehemiah was observing everyone as they were building the wall, Christ is observing us. Christ is observing us. And thus, just like there was an account written of Israel, whether we can see it now or not, there's an account that exists of each and all of us in our lives today. We often see this mentioned in Scripture with the phrase, the day of the Lord, which is speaking of the day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead before we enter into eternal life with Him. Listen to these passages right here. I'm almost done. Proverbs 24, 12 says, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? This verse is saying, Don't think you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and play dumb. He's able to read your heart. If you know that you're accountable to God, you should be living that way, right? That's what this verse is saying. Because while we've been justified by grace as a gift, God is going to weigh our works in the end to see if we responded to his grace by faith. If you're not sure about that, listen to this one. Matthew 16, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So once again, we see that the Lord is keeping an account of our lives for the sake of rewarding our faithfulness or for judging our lack of faithfulness. Okay, one more. Romans 14 says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then, verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. There are a lot more scriptures I could read to back this up. I won't, won't do it because we're out of time. And, but this is plain, isn't it? This is very plain. We all have good works to be walking in by faith. And we will give an account to the Lord for them in the end. Okay. So as we close, I ask you to consider, on the last day of our 21-day fast, okay, we've, we've now begun to cover the kingdom work that Israel did in response to Nehemiah's call to rebuild the wall. Here's the question. How are you responding to the biblical vision that's been cast to you? How are you responding to the biblical vision that's been cast to you? Are you one of the many who rally together and who go all in, sacrificing resources and recruiting your family? Are you working together as a crucial member of the body of Christ? Listen, at Mosaic, we want to help you do that. We want to help you do that. Forget those Tekoite nobles, right? If you even see that in yourself, just forget about that. I don't mean that hard on anybody. I love you guys. 
Forget about that. We want to help you be faithful. That's what we want to do at Mosaic. We don't want you to sit back idly and and hold back. We want to help you to believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey his word. And so if there is any way, any way, I mean any way, that we can help you with that, please, please, please let us know. Let me know. Let Jason know. Let Tristan know. Let Josh know. Right? Let us know. Let David know. Let our wives know. We, we want to help you. If you want to become an official partner with Mosaic, let us know, man. Just come on to our, our, our partner up Sunday, next Sunday after service. If you want to be plugged into biblical community, let us know, man. I think all three groups are meeting tonight. You can do that tonight. Come join us. We want you to be with us. We'd love to have you. If you want to serve in the band, you got to be talented, but if you want to serve in the band, <laughs> just trying to help Josh out here, okay? You want to be in the band, there is a, there, you have to try out, okay? If you want to be in the band or production or kids ministry or hospitality team or our facilities team or as part of one of our outreach teams, let us know. I'll get you connected in 10 minutes after this service to those leaders. I'll help you. I'll get you connected. Or if you want to follow Jesus, for the first time, for real, if you're like, it's time, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to take the jump. I'm going to follow Jesus, right? If you want to get serious about reading God's word, even, let us know. Let me know. I will be glad before you leave this place today. I will load you down with good resources, and I will connect you with people who want to walk with you now, friend, now. We will help you, please. Let us know if you need help. We, we want to help you. Because we all have good works to be walking in by faith. Every single one of us. That's Ephesians 2, by the way. If you want to read where I got that, that we all have good works to be walking in. That's the exact language. Because we're going to give an account to the Lord at the end. As one of the pastors of Mosaic who's been charged with caring for your soul. I would love to help you however I can. So you can be positive. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you won't be like those Tekoite nobles who refuse to stoop to serve the Lord. But instead, the words that you'll hear from Christ are well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We want that for you. If you want that for you and we want that for you, then ask for help. We love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you as always for this morning. This has been a long passage with a lot of hard names to read. God, put every word in Scripture is profitable for teaching and for building us up as the body of Christ and for correction if needed, God. I pray today that these men and women in here, God, that they're not weary of the word, of hearing what you have to say, God. They're not resentful of your discipline, your loving discipline, if they feel that, God, but that they are feeling stirred to be an active part of the body of Christ. I pray that every man and woman in this room knows that they are valued They are loved. We love them. You love them. And they are necessary. Whatever their gifting, whatever their skill level, whatever they have, God, you have told us that we we need them. We need them as a part of this body to function the way you've called us to, to be a picture of your love in this world and to work together in unity for the mission that you've given us. We love you, Lord. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.